Skeletons are a common costume choice at Halloween. They are, after all, the ultimate symbol of death, because let's be honest, if I see a skeleton, then I know I'm looking at a dead body. And indeed, finding lost or buried bones is common in gothic stories. Revealing the bones brings forth a hidden secret. And there's even a profession dedicated to understanding the secrets that skeletons conceal, and that's forensic osteology. The skeleton bears witness to whatever cruel fate befell the individual, and despite its silence, the skeleton can still tell its story to those who know how to listen. And let's be honest, even the Grim Reaper often chooses the guise of a skeleton, pointing a bony finger at his next victim. So come, take my outstretched collection of bones wrapped in skin, and let's explore the folklore of skeletons in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there, and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult, and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author, and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. And welcome to Halloween month here on Fabulous Folklore. It is literally my favourite time of the year now. So in this month, we're going to be looking at all kind of things, sort of a bit Halloween-y, a bit sort of scary, ghostly, bit icky possibly, haven't decided yet, all that kind of thing. You know the deal. And this week, we're having a look at the folklore of skeletons. Now, I do want to start with a little bit of a proviso because bones appear in quite a lot of folklore and legends through their use in divination, for example. But because they're usually animal bones, this sort of fall outside our scope here. So I'm only looking at human skeletons in this one. Now, let's just get started, shall we? Now, one of the key functions of the skeleton, or indeed skulls, in art is as a memento mori. And the phrase memento mori simply means, remember, you must die. So being confronted with a skeleton generally reminds you of death. Now, the skeleton's appearance as such derives from the Dutch vanitas paintings of the 16th and 17th centuries. And here the bones were specifically used to represent the memento mori. It's cheerful stuff. And often you do find that you have images of, say, skulls alongside things like hourglasses or rotting fruit or even dead animals sometimes, like rabbits and hares and so on. And occasionally you'll have even just a flower arrangement that's wilting because obviously, you know, once you cut the flowers, they die. And again, it was all just this kind of thing that people would have in their home just to remind them of their own mortality. And I have heard quite a few people talking about this recently, that you kind of get more out of life when you know that it has a finite end. And I think that that's the weird almost form of like positive affirmation that they're trying to get out of these paintings but yeah that's how you end up with this sort of link between skeletons and the memento mori now skeletons do also become memento mori in unintentional ways and one of the best examples of this is the parish catacombs and if you haven't been i highly recommend it it's sad but really interesting at the same time An overcrowding and outbreaks of disease prompted the Parisian authorities to close several city cemeteries in the 18th century. But obviously they then had all the people who'd been interred in these cemeteries and they weren't quite sure what to do with them. And then they remember that they had all these miles and miles and miles, and I do mean miles, of abandoned lime quarries beneath the city. So then they decided to relocate the bones to one section of that and then formed the infamous catacombs. And it was later on that somebody actually rearranged the bones into the fabulous displays that you see now. Now the catacombs actually opened in 1874 to visitors and people still flock to see this really quite moving spectacle of like twisting corridors of bones. 
And so famous, for example, is the short section of the catacombs that houses the bones that many assume the catacombs only contain bones. I'm not going to lie, I was one of them. I went out there and I was kind of like, okay, now I'm just walking around an abandoned mine working. Like, what's going on? And then you read the bit where you kind of go in and it's all very sad and, and so on. And I've got quite a funny story about the catacombs, but I'll tell you that another time. Back to skeletons, shall we? Now, artistic bone displays also appear at the Chapel of Skulls in Zmyrna in Poland and also the Sedlec Ossuary in the Czech Republic. Now, I think the Sedlec Ossuary is probably the most famous example. Now, ossuaries are less common in the United Kingdom, although St Bride's Church on Fleet Street does have a charnel house that you can visit as part of their tour of the church. Now, St Bride's Church was actually bombed during the war, so, of course, obviously, they did end up with quite a lot of the people who'd been buried under the floor essentially laid bare. And the skeletons of these people are now in archive boxes, again, in the basement of the church, where they can be more easily studied by osteologists. Seems a little bit weird to see all these archival filing sort of storage boxes that I'm used to seeing as containing documents, but actually containing people. It is a bit odd. And of course, beyond that, you do often see the skull and crossbones on pre-20th century gravestones as memento mori. Now, I have heard people insist that they mark the graves of pirates, but alas, that's really unlikely. Some actually believe it's more likely because the skull and femurs, which are the two crossbones, are actually the last part of a skeleton to decompose. Now, the piles of bones in the Paris catacombs would support that theory because all that's left are skulls and femurs. But let's be honest, skeletons are ultimately quite creepy because look at the skeletons in Poltergeist from 1982, the ones that erupt through the floor of the house and into the swimming pool. They are actually real skeletons because the production design team felt that fake skeletons look too uniform so they sourced actual sets of bones from India. And I think there's quite a lot of issues around that about consent and obviously what people would wish their remains to be used for after they've gone and I think that's probably not one of the things most people would be insistent on so just bear that in mind when you watch Poltergeist. But let's have a look at some skeletons in folklore shall we? Well some ghosts actually take the form of skeletons and one such spirit appears in the Superstition Mountains in Arizona. Now described as being eight feet tall this roaming skeleton carries a lantern and some say that he carries the lantern before him other people say he actually bears a lantern light that shines outward from inside his ribcage. Now, the skeleton doesn't really seem to go out of its way to scare people, and there is a retelling of a ghost story about this, in which a prospector simply shoots at it in fright, and the skeleton just kind of continues to randomly wander about without actually breaking its stride. So, who or what the ghost is looking for still seems to remain a mystery, but it's interesting, I think, that we then still have this gigantic skeleton ghost as a story in this particular part of America. Meanwhile, in Lithuanian folklore, you can find the Zaburninus, the Zaburinus, and this forest-dwelling spirit is a glow-in-the-dark skeleton. And in some depictions, the skeleton carries the lantern inside its ribcage. And according to the legends, seeing one was bad luck because a sighting always meant someone was close to death nearby. And finally, we also have Lanku, or the Anku, whichever way you want to look at it, who's the harvester of the dead, who sometimes appears in folklore from both Jersey and Brittany. And he often appears as a skeleton. Sometimes he also wears a shroud. But he basically trudges around the countryside with a cart collecting the dead. And in some tales, skeleton servants accompany him and he stands in his cart, scything his harvest of the dead. Now you can either hear the cartwheels creaking or the dead screaming, announcing his approach. And if you feel yourself pushed into a ditch, beware. This omen foretells impending death. And feeling a shudder means he will return soon. Now, at this time of the year, often here in the West, skeletons have become synonymous with Mexico's Dia de los Muertos festivities, 
But where exactly did the skeleton motif come from? Well, the one I'm talking about is obviously the one with, you know, the fabulous makeup and often wearing like hats and so on. And in 19th century Mexico, satirists often wrote verses about the hypothetical death of prominent figures in even places. So they're basically these satirical epitaphs. Publishers would then illustrate the verses with skeletons and sometimes they'd be acting out whatever had happened to the person. Now, due to censorship laws, satire was the only way to discuss the political and social challenges facing the country at the time. Now, the most famous example of these, La Calavera Catrina, was a satire of Mexican women who wore heavy makeup to appear lighter in skin tone. Artist Jose Guadalupe Posada illustrated a leaflet, La Calavera Garbancera, in 1910, in which he criticised these women for trying to hide their indigenous heritage. So the skeleton woman appeared in the illustrations, and that's where she's got the really white face and all the fancy makeup and then the big hat and everything, so she's trying to imitate the French style of dressing. But in 1948, Diego Rivera then included this particular depiction of the skeleton woman in his mural depicting Mexican history, and he then went on to name her La Catrina. Now, when discussing Posada's work, our critic Luis Cardoza y Garagón suggested that the image of the skeleton should be considered a national symbol of Mexico since it had become so popular in Mexican popular culture. So I would bear this in mind if you do decide for Halloween that you want to dress up as something possibly leave the day of the dead stuff alone if you're not mexican because obviously there are layers of meaning to that that i think we often don't really grasp here in the west but naturally you might also think of santa muerte otherwise known as the bony lady or saint death if you thought of mexico and skeletons and this very popular folk saint attracts outright condemnation from the church but she does offer healing and hope to the marginalised people often ignored by the church. Now, I don't want to go into it too much here, but if you would like to learn more about Santa Muerte, I would recommend the 2007 documentary La Santa Muerte by director Eva Arigis. It is very good. I, I watched it a little while ago for a course I did with Morbid Anatomy. Very, very interesting. But we're going to move on to skeletons and superstitions now for the last part of this episode. Because obviously superstitions are a really interesting way to find out what people actually believed about things. But in Worthing, Sussex, skeletons are linked with a midsummer tale. Now, according to the legend first recorded in 1868, skeletons emerged from an oak tree near Broadwater Green on Midsummer's Eve. They danced until dawn and then sank back into the ground when the sun's rays warmed the soil. Now, perhaps the story isn't so far-fetched. Daniel J. Brinton noted a belief that the word bonfire comes from bone fire. And in essence, a fire was used to burn bones as a form of sacrifice. And he did note in 1890 that remote parishes in Munster and Connaught in Ireland were still burning bones in their St John's Eve bonfires. Brinton also noted the old belief that the personality of the individual clung to a skeleton, so this might explain the superstition that if you remove a human bone from a cemetery and take it home, you'll be tormented by the corpse's spirit until you return the bone. I don't honestly know why anybody would think that was a good idea, to find a bone in a cemetery and then take it home, so just leave things where you find them, people. But that's... As I said, that, that's where that superstition comes from. But Brinton does also relate an old belief that human bones held medical virtues, and apothecaries might add ground-up bones to a range of concoctions. A popular 17th century superstition claimed that ale was more intoxicating if you'd mix the ashes of human bones into it, and this custom was actually officially forbidden in Ireland. But weirdly, seeing a skeleton when you didn't expect to meant that you'd be invited to a ball or a wedding. Now, I should point out that I did do the Highgate Cemetery tour. I mean, I've done it about three times, but there was one of them where it actually included the catacombs. And as we're walking along inside the catacombs, one of the coffins had essentially decayed so you could see its occupant. So yes, 
I did see a skeleton when I wasn't expecting to. And I didn't receive any invitations, so I'm not necessarily sure that that superstition actually works. I'm also not sure what the link between seeing a skeleton and getting invited to a wedding is, but there we go. That's That superstition comes from 1903, so make of it what you will. So what do we ultimately make of the skeleton in folklore? Now, we haven't gone into the likes of religious relics, which are often bones, and we haven't thought about the legends that cling to famous skeletons, see Richard III, and obviously there's a new film coming out about this, the search for Richard III, which is causing all kinds of consternation on the internet at the moment. But obviously we have looked at how skeletons have been used to illustrate things, to make a point in a way that I think satire works best with things like that. We've had a look at the way that they're used in art to remind people that they'll die as well. But it is a little bit more difficult to find them in actual folklore because obviously, like I said, a lot of the stuff around bones is around animal bones. But it's also just the fact that skeletons seem very tied to specific times of year. I thought it was really interesting that these things about the St John's Eve bonfires, well, that's also Midsummer's Eve. So I thought it was really interesting that you've got the skeletons associated with Midsummer rather than Halloween. So that is something I think that further investigation might be quite interesting with. But I hope you've enjoyed this particular episode on skeletons and folklore. Like I say, there's not necessarily as many superstitions or meanings and things as I would necessarily have liked, but I do think that there's some quite interesting ideas about particular figures who take the form of skeletons. Now, next week's episode is going to be death superstitions. And I know I've kind of covered them a little bit in lots of different episodes, but this is going to kind of collect a lot of them into one place. So hopefully you'll enjoy that as well. And also, I have now just put out the bonus episode for last month for my Patreon supporters. So if you're interested in The Mermaid of Zena, then that was the bonus episode for September on Patreon. And you can always become a member of the Fabulous Folklore family. And you will get access to like exclusive articles and short storytelling episodes, bonus episodes, illustrated talks, a whole load of stuff if you become a supporter. And obviously, people often wonder why they would do that. And to be honest with you, it literally just helps me keep the podcast going because I do have costs associated with it, like hosting the website, hosting the podcast itself, and then my actual time and researching and writing and recording and everything like that. And I know everyone's basically strapped for cash at the minute, but obviously that does apply to creators as well. But if you can't afford to support, don't worry. Just simply either write a review on iTunes if you've got access to that, or tell a friend pass on word of the podcast to people who you think might like it because even just telling other people about it is still really valuable so even if financial support is beyond you you can still just help get the word out and that would still be really really useful as well anyway I'll, I'll stop waffling on now and I'll let you crack on and I'll see you next week when we'll have a look at death superstitions cheerio well thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed that episode If you did, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts because that helps other people find the show too. It also takes between four and six hours to research, write, record and edit these episodes. So if you want to help support my time in doing that, then you can buy me a coffee or you can join the Fabulous Folklore family on Patreon and enjoy extra benefits, including exclusive episodes and articles and even illustrated talks. All the links you need are below and thanks in advance.